Turn with me to the book of Hosea, chapter number 5. Hosea, chapter number 5, one of the twelve minor prophets of the Bible. They're called minor, not because of uh, any lack of importance in their message, but just because of the size of their uh, prophetic books. They're smaller than the other major prophets. And uh, the book of Hosea, chapter number 5, Hosea is dealing with an apostate Israel. Hosea is probably one of the most beautiful books in all of the Old Testament. Uh, It is a book of darkness, but it is a book of light. It is a book of tragedy, but it is a book of triumph as well. And all through the book of Hosea, you see Israel running, but you see God pursuing. And can I say to you that that's a blessed truth to believers, that when we run, God pursues. Uh, You know, we read the book of Jonah, and we think it's about a, a big fish, but it's not about a big fish, it's about a big God. And it's about grace, it's about the fact that even when Jonah was running, God didn't give up on him. And there's times in my life, in your life, when we're running from what God has for us. And I'm just thankful that God doesn't give up on us. If it was me, I'd give up on me. You know what I mean? Uh, I think that sometimes God exhibits more uh, love and compassion, determination for us than even we'd exhibit for ourselves. Uh, I think sometimes we get more put out with us than even God does. Now you say, wait a minute, preacher, are you saying our sin doesn't upset God? Well, of course it does. But He knew about our sin when He saved us. He knew who and what we were. That's what Calvary is about. And I tell you, even when Jonah was ready to give up and die, God wasn't done with him. And even when Elijah was ready to give up and die, God wasn't done with him. He just had sent the angel to kick him and say, get up and eat. You know, we're going to go on a little further. The journey's too great for thee. And I'm thankful in my life when I lay down on God and I want to give up. I'm thankful he don't give up on me. Hosea chapter number 5 this morning, and as I've already said, we're dealing with an apostate Israel. And it's very evident from the uh, example that's given, uh, in the type that's given through Hosea the prophet and his wayward wife Gomer uh, in the first three chapters, uh, that God is dealing with the nation of Israel. They are apostate, they are idolatrous, they are rebellious, but God is trying to draw them back into fellowship with him, And there's some interesting things that are said in chapter number 5. Uh, let's begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, Hear ye this, O priests, and hearken ye house of Israel, and give, ear, give ye ear, O house of the king. For judgment is towards you, because ye have been a snare on Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. The revolters are profound to make slaughter, though I have been a rebuker of them all. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defiled. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God. For the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known the Lord. And the pride of Israel doth testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. Judah also shall fall with them. They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord, but they shall not find Him. He hath withdrawn Himself from them. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have begotten strange children. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. Blow ye the cornet in Gibeah and the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at Beth-Avon after thee, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel have I made known that which shall surely be. Notice verse 10. The princes of Judah were like them that remove the bound. 
Therefore I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked after the commandment. Therefore will I be unto Ephraim as a moth and to the house of Judah as rottenness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then went Ephraim to the Assyrian and he sent to King Jareb. Yet could he not heal you nor cure you of your wound? For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take away and none shall rescue. Verse 15 says, I will go and return to my place till... They acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Let's read verse 10 once more. Our text is found there. It says, The princes of Judah were like them that remove the bound. Therefore, I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless your word. Lord, I want to confess before these people... Lord, both for my own humility and also, Father, just in testimony to your greatness and goodness, I want to confess that I am insufficient, Lord, that I am incapable, that I can assemble and ensemble words together, but I cannot affect hearts except the Holy Ghost take your word and speak to us. So, Father, help me now this morning to submit myself to the leading of the Holy Ghost. Help me to hide behind your cross. God, I pray that you would affect each ear and each heart in a way that would bring you glory. Lord, you know the reason and the purpose behind every message and idea that you give us. And God, we just trust you that you're able to fulfill in our lives what's most needful. Now, Lord, we ask you to accomplish these things. We know that you will. You're always faithful to. We ask all this in the precious, magnificent name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now in chapter number 5 of the book of Hosea, just as in all of the book of Hosea, the nation of Israel has gone after other gods, after other idols, and they are wayward from God. And there's a lot of blame that is laid at different feet, and different people are attributed some guilt for what takes place. But as you read through the book of Hosea, the overwhelming theme is that at the end of the day, the sin of Israel is upon Israel. And do you know that you and I, at the end of the day, we can blame anybody we want But it's our fault when we've got sin in our lives. I mean, that's just the sheer truth of it this morning. If there's something in your life that is putting you at all with God, it's not on anyone else to fix it. It's not on anyone else to confess it or forsake it. It's on you to do this. And through the entire book of Hosea, we find this bleak message of the coming judgment of God. Now, we know that the judgment of God did come uh, when the Assyrians came and they uh, took away the uh, northern ten tribes of Israel. And then later when Nebuchadnezzar came through and took away the southern two tribes of Judah, we know that the judgment of God did come. But what was it that caused the judgment of God? You know, we live in a topsy-turvy world today. Do you know that this morning? And as I read verse 10, I'm reminded as I look around, I see a picture of what modern-day Christianity looks like. Notice it again with me. It says, The princes of Judah were like them that remove the bound. Now you say, what is a bound, preacher? What does a bound mean? Well, let me use a word that we use commonly today that I believe that you will identify immediately. Could I use the word boundary to you this morning? 
The Bible says that the princes of Judah were like them that removed the boundaries from people's lives. Now, we know what boundaries are. In fact, uh, uh, it's a major sports season right now, and I, I'm not going to preach on being in church on the night of the Super Bowl. Uh, I already promised somebody I wasn't going to do that, and I'd say most of us know what the Lord expects anyway. But tonight, as they play that Super Bowl, uh, you're going to see on either side of that football field some white lines. And those lines are set there as boundaries, and they tell you some things when you see those boundaries. Boundaries are what makes a playing field a playing field. Uh, they're vital. They're important. In fact, to my knowledge, you won't find a single sport in the world that doesn't have some kind of boundaries set down. Uh, but you know, life has boundaries. God has boundaries. And you'll hear people say sometimes, well, the Bible's just a rule book. Well, what's so wrong with a rule book? We need rules, don't we? I mean, we've got a society with rules. If we didn't, we'd have what we call anarchy. And anarchy sounds appealing to those that have an IQ of about 12. But if you was actually to live in anarchy, you wouldn't be a big fan of somebody coming, knocking your front door down, taking whatever they wanted, and walking out and leaving. Nothing you could do about it. Rules and boundaries are set there for a purpose. And just as on a playing field, these boundaries in our life uh, provide us some things. Could I give you a few things I just jotted down about boundaries very quickly? I would say that by nature, boundaries are number one prohibitive. That's what they are. They show you where you could not or should not or cannot or will not go. Uh, they're on either side of a football field or even on a basketball court or uh, even on a soccer field or uh, anywhere in any sport that you play. Those boundaries are there to say this is the stopping point. You're not to go any farther than here. Well, you say, well, preacher, why does that matter? Because boundaries are not only prohibitive, but boundaries are punitive. You'll find very quickly, if you get out and play any kind of sports, you can tell I don't. But if you do, uh, when you get out and you cross over that boundary, you're going to find that there will be a penalty for crossing over that boundary. And it varies in different sports, but typically what it means, listen to what I'm about to say. Typically, if you cross the boundaries, it means you're out of play. You can't get back in until you get inside the boundaries. There is a penalty ascribed for being outside the boundaries. And so if we understand they're prohibitive and punitive, we understand that they must be preventative. The reason that a boundary is there is not to trip someone up, but is there as a warning. Can I say to you this morning that sin would destroy us whether God pointed it out or not? Can I say that again? I don't know if we got the weight of that when I just said it. Sin would destroy us whether God pointed it out or not. Sin has a corrosive effect on the heart of the human being, both to damn him to hell and to destroy his joy and happiness and integrity. God does not prescribe boundaries. God does not set things down just to exert his power. God doesn't have to exert his power. His power is absolute. His sovereignty is unchallenged. His authority is untainted. God puts boundaries down to let us know what's going to hurt us. God doesn't say thou shalt not kill because he has a problem with killing. God says thou shalt not kill because it's going to be a problem for you if you kill. God doesn't say thou shalt not commit adultery because it threatens his throne if you commit adultery. God says thou shalt not commit adultery because it's going to hurt you if you commit adultery. Most of us grasp this idea. If you have children, uh, mine can't do anything right now. He's like a burrito. He just lays there. But if you've raised children, you set certain rules down. And those rules were not for no reason. Uh, you might have told your little child, said, I don't want you to put your hand upon this hot stove. And in the mind of a little child, what that means is, first chance I 
get, I'm going to put my hand on that hot stove. But they learned very quickly that, see, Mama and Daddy were just trying to help them. Uh, some of you, they didn't have them when you was raising children. Others of you, I'm sure they did. But now if you go into any house with any kind of toddlers, you're going to find baby gates. They're the most hateful inventions uh, ever derived out of the pit and darkness of hell. Uh, they're impossible to open, but they're invisible in the middle of the night. And if you put baby gates up in your house, you're putting boundaries up because you don't want your child to get hurt. You see, they're not only preventative, they're protective. Those boundaries are there for a reason. Can I say that the Word of God puts some boundaries in your life and in mine? And they're there for our good and for God's glory. They're not there because God just wanted something to fill a book with. Uh, God could have made the Bible one page if He wished to, or a million pages if He wished to. He's God. He's sovereign. He can do as He pleases. God, everything in that King James Bible is there for a reason for your life and for mine. It's all there for a purpose. God has placed these boundaries in our life. Now, what happens when a believer steps outside of bounds? I made a statement this past week, and, and there was actually a lot of discussion about it. It was on the Facebook, you know. We ain't got nothing better to do than sit around and look on people's Facebooks, Brother Ralph, so that's what we do. Uh, but I made the statement that one of the greatest tragedies of the modern church is that pastors are too afraid to tell their people what God really expects of them. Uh, what discipleship really demands of them. And, and in my book, that's treason against the cause of Christ. Most pastors are scared to uh, tell their people that God really demands them to be in the house of God. God really demands that they give of what He's blessed them with. God really demands that they read their Bible. God really demands that they pray. God really demands that they live holy. God really demands that they witness to people. These are not re uh, recommendations. These are requirements if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. God expects these things. And I'd say the majority of Christians are living outside of the boundaries in their life. You know, there's not only uh, definitive boundaries, but I thought this was interesting. I don't want to spend too much time on this. Uh, but there's such thing as called offsides. Most of you know what offsides is. Uh, if you're playing in soccer, that's when you step too far back. If you're playing in football, that's when you step too, too far forwards and you cross the line of scrimmage. You see, that is a boundary that is unique to the individual. You know, there may be some things in your life uh, that are not necessarily sin, but God's dealt with you about them. And for you, if you step over that line, you're out of bounds. And there's a penalty. It's punitive. It harms us. The Bible says of the nation of Israel that the princes of Judah had removed the boundaries. They were living without any rules, without any boundaries in their life. And I know that sounds appealing, but listen to how God dealt with them. I'm thankful that when we get out of bounds in our life, God loves us enough to deal with us. The Bible says that no chastening for the uh, present time uh, seemeth pleasurable, but afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Uh, none of us like to be chasing. But hey, if your daddy loves you, he's going to chasten you. And our God loves us enough to whip us when we get out of line. And the Bible says that God would deal with the nation of Israel in a few ways. And do you know that in many ways, God's dealings with the nation of Israel can parallel how he deals with his church? Not in all ways, but God's people are God's people. And so I believe there's some ways that God deals with us. Could I say first off, uh, we see down in verse number 12, he said that I will be as a moth. Could I say when you live out of bounds, when you get sin in your life, Brother Ralph, that the first thing that happens is God deteriorates the believer inwardly. 
Uh, most of us know what a moth is. Uh, if you've got a porch light outside your house, you certainly know what a moth is. Uh, a moth is a little fuzzy, ugly butterfly. Isn't that right? Uh, and uh, most of you, if you've got a closet, especially if you ain't got no cedar in there, you know what moths are. There may be a time when you've gone to pick out your favorite coat. Or your fa- it may be so long you're pulling out that leisure jumpsuit. But whatever it is, it's been in your closet for a while. And you pull that thing out and it's not been anywhere. Uh, nothing outwardly has happened to it. But you open it and you look at that garment and there's little holes eat all the way through it. A moth is something, first off, that works in the secret places. Could I say that the first thing that happens to a believer when he starts living out of bounds is there is a secret deterioration that begins to take place. Can I tell you something? You may have seen somebody that got off the tracks in their life. I know I've seen it. I mean, I've seen, in fact, I was talking to somebody just back of this, uh, that their entire life has just gone to nothing. There's broken and there's weeping. Uh, you know, that didn't happen all at once, Brother Ralph. And nine times out of ten, it don't matter what it is, if you see a home bust up, it didn't happen in the day that you saw it happen. It had been happening for a long time. If you see a person get out of church and take to drinking, that didn't happen in one day. Something had taken place in their life. And in the secret places, just as the moth works in the secret places, they had been deteriorating. Do you know that some of you, you once had a prayer life, but it's deteriorated. You once had a time of studying the Bible, but it's deteriorated. And some of you would have to admit there was once a time when you put your faith in God to deliver and to help you and to strengthen you, but your faith is deteriorating. It's not only a secret deterioration, it is a spiritual deterioration. Every outward sin is just a manifestation of a spiritual problem. It doesn't matter what it is. It might be a small sin. It might be a big sin. It might be something people would gasp out. It might be something people would chuckle at. But whatever sin you've got in your life, it began as a spiritual problem. The Bible tells us to guard our hearts, for out of it uh, cometh forth the issues of life. The Bible says, as a man is in his, uh, thinketh in his heart, so is he. Every single sin problem is a spiritual problem on the inside before it's ever manifest on the outside. Uh, some of you have probably experienced this. You've known somebody. You, let me ask you this. You ever known somebody that their life went to nothing and you, you would have given five paychecks to bet if you was a betting person that it would have never been them? You ever had that happen? Uh, ha- have you ever seen that perfect marriage fall apart and you thought, how did that happen? Have you ever seen that, that, that uh, spiritual giant falter and fail and go to nothing and you think, how did that happen? It started on the inside. Some little step out of bounds. Do you know, Brother Ralph, that you don't have to go very far out of bounds to be out of bounds? In fact, most of the time when the players are out of bounds, they've just set a foot or two outside of bounds. And some of us, you see, we're not four miles out of bounds. We're just one foot, maybe two foot out of bounds. But do you know that's all it takes to be out of bounds? And then it it begins. The spiritual deterioration. You know what he says? He says, I will be as rottenness. To Judah, we see a sorrowful deterioration. You know, there's some people, and I don't know anyone's heart. I'm not trying to proclaim that I know anyone's heart. But I would say this. If our church is like most typical Baptist churches, if our church is like most... And I don't mean in weirdness, because we're way weirder than most Baptist churches. But if our church is like most typical Baptist churches, listen to me. There's someone sitting in this room that hates being here right now. God has become a rottenness to you. You've lost your joy. 
You was mad when you came in. You'll be mad when you leave. You don't want to be here. I'll be as a rottenness. Rotten. There's some of you, when you walked in, you said to yourself, I don't want to sing them songs anymore. I don't believe them. Some of you, when you walked in, you said, I don't want to smile at them people. I don't like them. And your problem is not your church family. Your problem is you're out of bounds. Become as rottenness. An abhorrent thing. There's nothing worse than rottenness, is there? I guess that's part of the reason I hate alcohol so much. It ain't nothing but rotten juice. That's what it is. You take something, you can take anything that was once alive and is now dead. uh, Anything from the plant world and stick it out there and let it rot long enough and it'll get you drunk. As, As rottenness. You know, people that get mad and quit on church didn't happen in a day. Didn't happen. The moth had been eating at them. They had grown discontented first. And by the way, we better watch this thing about, and I'm not, I'm not, don't think I have anyone in mind. As far as I know, I mean, everybody in here is A1 number one, so don't misunderstand me, but we better watch this thing about dissatisfaction. Because it's one thing to be dissatisfied with your friends or your, your church family, your spouse, but a lot of times the real problem is we're just dissatisfied with Christ. And that's why we're dissatisfied with everything else is because we're dissatisfied with Christ. He's become as rottenness to us. wonder where that started. It started when you took a step out of bounds. David spoke of this. He prayed and he asked God to restore unto him the joy of his salvation. Why? Because he had lost it. He lost it. He's miserable because of his sin. We've got a lot of Christians that are miserable in their life. And they think they're miserable because of the boundaries. But they're not miserable because of the boundaries. They're miserable because they're outside the boundaries. And there's some of them. I, I tell you, it's, I, I, it grieves me for young people today. Because we've given our young people a complex. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. We've made them think that we obey the Bible because it's a duty and a responsibility. And so many of them are growing up feeling trapped because they see no real joy in their parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles. They don't see any joy of the Lord in them. And so they just assume that being a Christian is a miserable thing. And the second they turn 18 or whenever they're allowed out of the house, they hit the bricks and they're gone out. They're in a far country with fake friends burning a hole in their pocket. Why? Well, they've seen parents, they've seen older people They lost the joy of their salvation. They stepped outside. It ought to excite us what God's done in our life. And everybody's different. I'm not trying to say we all ought to do backflips or shout or snort or whatever you think. I'm just saying that there ought to be a joy in the life of the believers. And I'm afraid that some of us, we've we've allowed this deterioration to take place. And we're miserable. We see a secret thing taking place, Brother Ralph. But I want you to look at verse... Number 14, the first thing God does is He deteriorates the believer inwardly. But look at verse number 14. The Bible says, For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion, and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take away, and none shall rescue him. We see that the first thing He does is He deteriorates the believer inwardly. But secondly, He devours the believer outwardly. This, most of the time, is the point when we see it in the lives of others. By the way, you can only keep up the fake act for so long. You're only going to keep it up for so long. 
The Bible says that where God had worked as a moth in secret places, He would now devour Israel as a lion in open places. We saw this take place uh, when Tiglath-Pileser came down and destroyed the northern ten tribes of Israel. We saw when nations took swords against the nation of Israel and they became devoured and eaten up like a lion in their history. And you know there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people that in their life right now, God's getting ready to roar and make Himself known. I understand this is not sweet and exciting, and and I mean, this isn't a marshmallow sermon, but I believe it's true, and I've seen it in the lives of others. I've seen people put in an early grave because they were living outside of the boundaries. I've seen people's marriages destroyed because they were living outside of the boundaries. I'm not talking about just being sorrowful. I'm talking about when the judgment of God enters a person's life. And listen, God still judges people. I know we like to think, well, God doesn't judge anybody because of Calvary. The Bible says that judgment must first begin at the house of God. The judgment, He may not judge you as a sinner, but He'll still judge you as a son. And the judgment of God is still very present in people's lives. And we don't like to talk about it because it's uncomfortable. But do you know that even the the taking of the Lord's Supper unworthily, uh, Paul said concerning this, that for this cause many are sick and weakly among you and many sleep. See, there's people dead because of the way they're living. What was it that happened in Ananias and Sapphira's life? Ananias and Sapphira were two early church members. Uh, They were part of the church when it was in the thick of things, and God was doing things and saving people there in Jerusalem. And everybody was selling off their land, and they were uh, giving it to the church. And Ananias and Sapphira, they took a piece of land, and they sold it off. It was their land. They could have kept it if they wanted to. They could have kept all the money if they wanted to. They could have kept part of the money if they wanted to. But the problem was they lied to the Holy Ghost, and they lied uh, to the people of God, and they said, we're giving all this money, and they kept back a part of it. God struck them dead. Hey, you say, preacher, does God strike people dead for lying? No, He don't strike people dead for lying. But in their life, that was where the judgment of God and how the judgment of God needed to take place. I'm trying to say to you that we can't live outside the bounds forever before the referee's going to blow a whistle on us. We just can't live that way. We see three things. First off, I'd say we see a terror. said, I will come upon Come upon, I will, uh, I, you know, I read those, those hunting books sometimes, Brother Ralph, and they speak of the terror of lions. And uh, there's a fellow named Peter Capstick who was a big game hunter in the early, uh, or in the late 60s. And uh, he would uh, take people out in these expeditions, and he had to hunt man-eating lions. And uh, he told the story of a man by the name of Colonel Patterson that uh, helped uh, build a railroad bridge in Africa in the late 1800s. And Colonel Patterson, uh, when he came uh, to this place to build this railroad bridge, uh, there was two man-eating lions. It was in a place called Savo. In fact, the skins of these lions are stuffed and on display in the uh, Museum of Natural History in Chicago. These two man-eating lions descended upon this camp of two or three thousand what they called coolies. They were uh, eastern and Indian workers that they had transported in to build this railroad. And they would live in these uh, big camps out uh, a few miles away from the railroad bridge. And these two man-eating lions 
mines over a period of nine months killed hundreds of these Indian workers. And uh, Colonel Patterson, as he writes about it, describes just the terror that was inflicted uh, upon that camp. They would be laying in bed at night and two miles off at another camp somewhere else. They'd start to hear the screams of the men and they would see lights fire up and uh, men running around. And what it was is one of those lions had gone uh, through that thorn fence they had built, gone into a tent, dragged a man out into the wilderness to feed upon him. There was a terror that was inflicted when the lion showed up. Do you know that one of the first things that happens when God begins to discomfort a believer in his public life is they lose their peace and terror enters their life. There's some of you right now, you're just waiting for the judgment of God on your life because you know it's coming. Almost like a lion stalking you. You know you can't live this way forever and get away with it. You're just waiting. We see terror, but we see tearing. This is when God begins to destroy You say, that's not my God. If your God's the God of the Bible, it's your God. Tearing begins to tear into your life to destroy things. As a youth pastor, I used to see it all the time. And sometimes I wonder if God dealt with young people more because they were more willing to listen. Sometimes I worry when God leaves us alone. That usually is a bad thing. Uh, but I, I've, I've seen young people uh, wreck their cars, wind up sick, wind up destroyed because God was trying to get their attention. What do you think God was doing when he put Jonah in a whale's belly? He was tearing into his life, trying to get his attention. Boy, it'd be a shame to wind up in a sick bed just because we wanted to live outside of bounds. It'd be a shame to bury a spouse or a child because we wanted to live Out of bounds. But can I say to you that God loves you enough that He's not going to let you live out of bounds forever. We see a tearing, but we see a taking away. That's what He says. I will take away and go, and none, none shall rescue. You know, there's some things in our life, and I I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say because I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm thankful we can be forgiven, aren't you? I'm thankful that God can restore some things in our life. And I'm glad that what the, uh, what the worm takes away, God can uh, restore. I'm glad what the locust takes away and hath eaten, God can restore. But can I say to you that in your life, you live outside of the bounds long enough, there's going to be some things that you're going to lose that you won't get back. I remember hearing one time, and, and I'll, I'll embarrass him. I don't think he'll be embarrassed by it anyway. But I, I remember hearing Brother Kerry tell give a testimony one time, and I can't remember if it was in the main service or if it was in one of the youth activities, but he made the statement, he said, I've got people I went to college with that I'll never be able to witness to because of the way I lived in front of them. I'm thankful for the forgiveness of God, Brother Kerry. But it don't change that that testimony was destroyed. Uh, there, there's some of you that God's getting ready to take some things out of your life because you made idols out of them. Some things that you love dearly and some things that you keep if you'd put them in their proper place. You know, not everything we make an idol out of is intrinsically sinful. Uh, Not everything that we make an idol out of is is wicked and vile. But we make an idol out of it and God's got to dethrone it. And there's some things yes to take away. Okay, sometimes it's one of the hardest messages I've ever preached. Sometimes yes to take away the lives of loved ones. Sometimes he has to take away the lives of... I'm talking about people we love. But they're saved, ready to go and living right. And it was a greater help to the cause of Christ to take them on home so that our attention could be gotten. Sometimes it's a marriage. 
I'm talking about, I mean, we don't respect marriage today like we ought to, do we? I'm talking about a God-sanctioned, God-honored marriage that could have been fruitful and a blessing. But we decided to live outside the bounds, and God had to take it away. Sometimes it's a job. I tell you, any, if you're working right now, God's blessed you. I mean, not everybody is. And it ain't easy. Nothing wrong with a job. The Bible says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And the Bible says if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an infidel, and he's de- he has denied the faith. God help us. That ought to be our welfare program in this country, don't you think? you got a job. You better thank God for it. And don't make Him take it away because you made it an idol. He begins to take some things away. There's a third one. I'm just going... I'm, I'm done. Verse number 15. Three of the most terrifying words in all the Word of God. He says, I will go. The first thing He does is He... Uh, deteriorates the believer inwardly, and then he devours the believer outwardly. But then listen to what I'm about to say. He departs from the believer effectually. Now, I know we can't ever lose our salvation. You know me well enough to know I'm not preaching that this morning. And I'm thankful that the Spirit of God will always be with us. That's what Christ promised. But can I say that there is a sense in which the believer can lose the fellowship and presence of God in his life. The Bible speaks of Samson. I understand it was a different dispensational time, but it says of Samson that the Spirit of God departed from him. He wished it not. didn't even know it. We see in the book of Habakkuk that God hides himself from Habakkuk. Habakkuk is seeking for God. And at first Habakkuk is griping and complaining about all the apostasy and wickedness and, and all of the things taking place. By the time you get to the end of the book of Habakkuk, he's just begging God to show back up because God had hid himself from the face of Habakkuk. I know what it is to pray and not feel like God's hearing me. I know what it is to read my Bible and feel like it's a closed book. I know what it is to try to fellowship with God and not be able to find Him. I'm telling you my experience this morning. I've been in a place where God has had to say, I will go. I've experienced that in my life before. You won't know how, you won't know how much God means to you until He steps out of the scene. We see His leaving. He says, I'll go. Peace gone. The joy gone. He's still your God. He's still there. But he's left. We see his location. He says, I'll return unto my place. A place where he may be found. Aren't you thankful no matter how far you've gone, God can still be found? No matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far out of bounds you are. Because, I like this, there's only one hopeful word in the entire chapter, Hosea chapter 5. One hopeful word. One bright ray of light in the darkness of their apostasy. And it's found in verse number 10 when he says, Till. Till. God says, I will depart from you until you set your life right and you start to seek me. I will depart from you until you get things right. Could I say to you, I don't know how far outside of bounds you are. You may be so far that you don't feel like God's within a thousand miles of you, but do you know He's still listening? He's still listening? God's willing to set things right. God's willing for you to get back inside the bounds. 
and to forgive you and to set your heart and life right. You know what he said in their affliction? They'll seek me early. So why does he come as a, as a lion preacher? Because in their affliction, they'll see me, seek me early. You can't get back the time you're wasting living outside the bounds. So God would sooner give you wounds that he can heal than waste time that he cannot heal. This morning, I don't know why God does what he does. I don't know, I don't know who he gives things for. But I believe my whole heart that this message was the mind of God this morning. I, in the weakness of my flesh, I probably did not deliver it like it could or should or deserve to be given. But this morning, if God's dealt with you, if you're outside of the bounds, he may be working as a moth. He may be working as a lion. He may have departed. But he's still in his place, and there's a place that you can go and seek him and find him. And if you'll repent of your sin and pray to the God of heaven and ask for his blessing and richness again and for a restored fellowship, he'll restore you. He will. He's done it for me. He's done it for me more times than he ought to. He, he's done it more times than I should ask him to. But he's done it for me every time. He'll do it for you.